Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, in the wake of the October 7th attacks by Hamas and the ensuing bombing campaign from Israel on the Gaza Strip, many people were surprised that CNN's Fareed Zakaria aired an interview with a Palestinian activist who frankly described the daily human rights violations in Gaza, the right of Palestinians to resist occupation and apartheid, and how any tools of resistance they choose are deemed violent and punishable. Such statements aren't controversial from an international law or human rights perspective, but they stand out a mile in elite U.S. news media, suffused with assumptions, listeners will know. Palestinians attack, Israel responds. Periods of calm are when only Palestinians are dying. Stone-throwing is terrorism, but cutting off water is not. War is not the time for context still seems to be the mantra for many in the U.S. press, but there is, around the edges, growing acknowledgement of the dead end this represents, showing hour after hour of shocking and heart-wrenching imagery in a way that suggests violence is the only response to violence, when so many people are looking for another way forward. We'll talk with Phyllis Bennis from the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. Both Israel and Saudi Arabia would benefit from a security alliance between the two countries, argued a New York Times op-ed, but the United States would be the biggest winner. The piece ran through the talking points, as noted by Adam Johnson at the column. A deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia would make the U.S. safer. Something about threats from Iran, and if the U.S. doesn't build deeper partnerships with despotic regimes, the Chinese will. No mention of human rights or democracy. No mention either of the fact that the piece's author, Hussein Ibish, works for a think tank, the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, that was created and is funded by the Saudi government, its state oil company, and a host of weapons contractors. Declaring that Nicaragua had kept all foreign journalists out for more than a year, NPR said that their correspondent, Ider Peralta, was the first foreign journalist to make it into the country in that time. The leading claim of NPR's report a rare look inside locked-down Nicaragua, would come as news to reporters from independent outlets like Morning Star, Rabble, and Eyes on Latin America, which have all filed from the country in just the past few months. AP has put out at least two stories datelined Nicaragua in 2023. NPR's reporter wasn't even the only U.S. public broadcast journalist to report from Nicaragua in the previous month as Michael Fox from PRX's The World filed from Managua on August 23rd. The New York Times is forever lamenting the dividing of America, hearkening back to a never-existing time when we all came together to the potluck with our shared values, or at least agreed to politely disagree. Now it's all gone to heck. Here's the paper's trip Gabriel last week. Quote, 
Americans are increasingly fracturing as a people, and some are taking the extraordinary step of moving to escape a political or social climate they abhor. Close quote. In the piece, two families got fed up with their state's politics, so they moved out. Gabriel profiles two families, saying, quote, Their journeys from Blue Oregon to Red Missouri and from Red Iowa to Blue Minnesota mirror each other, unfolding only five weeks apart this spring. Close quote. One family, whose son is trans, moved after Iowa banned gender-affirming medical care for minors, criminalizing their son's treatments. The other left Oregon because a broad swath of progressive policies had degraded their quality of life, including Portland's tolerance of homeless encampments and a state effort to charge tolls on interstate highways in the city. So, seeking basic human rights and being unsympathetic to human suffering and public infrastructure, it's the same sort of thing, right? In today's America? Or maybe just in today's paper. Finally, claiming to feel the pain of those who hate paying for highways is one way, one imagines, the New York Times thinks they're evincing fellow feeling with the salt of the earth, the hoi polloi. But then they give the game away, with headlines like one from October 6th, Jobs Gains Surge, Troubling News for the Federal Reserve. Oops. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. As we record on October 11th, headlines tell of horror and misery across Gaza as Israel rains airstrikes on hospitals, mosques, and refugee camps declares a complete siege, blocking access to electricity, food, and fuel, and musters for a possible ground offensive. An Israeli Defense Force spokesman is being quoted warning that scenes coming out of Gaza in coming days will be, quote, difficult to understand and cope with, close quote. If the past is guide, scenes from Gaza will be especially difficult to understand if those presenting them avoid context, political, historical, human, in favor of storybook simplification and bloodthirsty cheerleading, followed by pronouncement by elites of rhetorical banalities endorsing injustice and indignity for millions. With occasional exceptions— U.S. corporate media's distortions of Palestine-Israel make it harder to do what so many want, to see a way forward without violence, with justice. Phyllis Bennis is director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and author of a number of books, including Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, a primer, now in its seventh updated edition. She joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Phyllis Bennis. Great to be with you, Janine. I'm hearing it said that while the specific nature of Hamas's October 7th attacks was surprising to some, it's not entirely true or useful to call the attacks unexpected in the way that we understand that word. What do people mean by that? I think the reference is to the understanding that resistance, including resistance violence, never just happens out of thin air. 
It happens in response to something. It happens in the context of something. And if we're serious about preventing acts of violence in the future, understanding the acts of violence that have already occurred, we have to be prepared to do the hard work of looking at context, looking at root causes, something that at moments of crisis, which for Israelis, this is clearly a moment of unexpected crisis, uh, but for people in this country as well, it's crucial that we take those hard steps to figure out what gives rise to this, because otherwise we're simply mouthing platitudes of condemnation. Condemnation of violent attacks on civilians is completely appropriate. Some of the acts of some of the Hamas uh, uh, militants were in complete violation of international law and should be condemned. And it's also true that they didn't just happen. They happened in the context of 75 years of oppression of Palestinians, decades of an apartheid system, and crucially in Gaza, where Hamas was born in 1987 with, we should note, significant Israeli assistance at the time, that the lives of people in Gaza, the 2.2 million people who live in that enclosed open-air prison, if you will, one of the most crowded places on the face of the earth, have lived under a state of siege that was imposed by Israel in 2007. Ironically, when we heard this horrific call from the Minister of Defense from Israel yesterday, who said, we are going to impose such an incredibly tight uh, siege, there will be nothing that gets in, no food, no fuel, no water, no electricity. This was a call to essentially commit genocide, knowing that with the sealing off of the last remnants of the siege that has already been in place, they are predicting that the impact of their policy will be mass starvation, mass thirst, mass death from injuries that the hospitals will be unable to treat because the hospitals won't have fuel for their generators, which they rely on because there's already insufficient electricity available in Gaza. In an article I'm just writing, I quote a Gaza woman, 72 years old, who said, you know, years ago, we had electricity 24 hours a day and took that for granted. Now that seems like a dream. And this was last June, before this new siege. So what they're talking about with this new siege is almost like a quantitative escalation of what is already in place. I, I found out today, and I, I was, I've got to say, as familiar as I am with the human rights violations in Gaza, this one shocked me. As of May of this year, 20% of all children in Gaza are stunted by the age of two. I had no idea that was the case. And yet it is. And that's before this level of punishment. So all of those things have to be taken into account to understand, not to justify, not to ever justify the killings of civilians, the killings of, of children and old people. Unacceptable should be condemned. And we have to understand from where that comes, why these things happen. Otherwise, we have no basis to figure out a strategy to stop the violence on all sides. 
Well, I, I do want to talk about stopping the violence, but just some definitions as we go forward. I have been surprised to read things like, you know, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant in announcing the siege say, we're fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. And then, you know, you might say, well, that's just rhetoric. But then we also have IDF officials saying, according to Haaretz out loud, you know, that Israeli airstrikes, quote, the emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy, close quote. Aren't these, isn't this unlawful collective punishment? Why does this become in reporting something that some critics say might possibly be seen as a war crime? These are clear war crimes. These are not potential, maybe somehow war crimes. These are clear, unequivocal war crimes. This is the kind of crime for which the Geneva Conventions, of which Article 33 is a specific prohibition of collective punishment, it's exactly these kinds of actions for which those articles were drafted. So yes, these are violations of international law, period, full stop. It is not, however, surprising or new that international law is not taken into account when its violations are committed by close allies of the United States. And Israel is at the top of the list for that kind of protection. This is an old story. International law is not imposed in the way that we hear it consistently imposed appropriately for Russian violations, for instance, in Ukraine. Those violations have been massive, and appropriately, they've been called out. We can identify the hypocrisy of the U.S. being the one to call them out, given U.S. histories of violations of international law. But nonetheless, it's accurate to call out those violations. The notion that somehow the Israeli actions, collective punishment, failure to distinguish between uh, civilians and fighters, all those things are direct violations of international law. They are war crimes. And the fact that United States support for Israel goes far beyond the $3.8 billion a year that we give as a, as a baseline to the Israeli military, but also includes the protection of Israel at the United Nations from ever being held accountable, the insurance at the International Criminal Court that Israeli officials, whether political or, or military officials, are never held accountable. This is unconscionable and makes the United States... And frankly, us as taxpayers makes us a component of that policy of apartheid and oppression. It makes us complicit. We are enabling, you know, that $3.8 billion, which is a pittance of our military budget, which is approaching a trillion dollars this year, 53 cents of every federal discretionary dollar goes directly to our military. But aside from that, we are paying 20% of the entire Israeli military budget. We don't do that with any other country. I just read uh, James Zogby saying that the State Department deleted two initial statements they had put out urging restraint and protection of civilians and changed them to offering Israel full U.S. support. And, you know, a lot of the talk that we hear is about what Palestinians should do or what Israel should do. And that kind of talk is a little bit abstract, and it's maybe a little easier for U.S. citizens to do than to grapple with what we as U.S. citizens should and could 
be doing. So I wanted to ask you just about that. Besides lamenting, besides condemning and looking on in horror, you know, what what place is there for us as as U.S. citizens? Ironically, and perhaps somewhat sadly, given the depth of this crisis and what lays ahead, I'm afraid both in numbers and in brutality is going to be even worse than the brutal and high numbers of dead and injured on both sides that have happened already. What we're going to see in Gaza as the Israeli bombardment escalates, as I have no doubt it will in coming days, is going to be disastrous. And it means we have a real obligation. What we need to be doing, I think, is to stop the U.S., the U.S. government, from doing what all of its institutional instincts, if I can coin a phrase like that, I'm not even sure that makes sense, but I think listeners will maybe understand what I mean. It's as if the institution of Congress, the institution of the State Department, the institution of the White House react in certain ways when the perception is that Israel for the first time is facing the kind of horror that it has in fact inflicted on Palestinians so many times before. And that means that we have an obligation to escalate the pressure that we've already been calling for on our members of Congress to stop saying we should send more weapons. You know, there was something very interesting in in Biden's speech on October 11th. He said two things that I found very useful, ironically enough. In one of them, he said that he had just gotten off the phone with Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel, and he said, I told him if the United States experienced what Israel is experiencing, our response would be swift, decisive, and overwhelming. And I thought, you know, a lot of people are saying this is Israel's 9-11, and we did experience that, and it was our response was swift and decisive and overwhelming, and it failed. Our response was war in Afghanistan and then war in Iraq, and they both failed. He went on to say, we also discussed how democracies like Israel and the United States are stronger and more secure when we act according to the rule of law. He was right. They are. And we didn't. And so it failed. It was an extraordinary moment. And I don't think anybody in the, in the commentariat, if you will, of the mainstream press caught that to say that that's exactly what we did in 9-11. And it failed. It failed to do any of the things we claimed it would do. It's remarkable and really reflects the kind of funhouse mirror understanding of really the the very recent history that we've all lived through, you know, and, and I just it brings me to this final question, because in many ways, in terms of media, I almost could have re-aired an interview that we did with you five years ago or 15 years ago, you know, in, in terms of missing context of dehumanization. But reality and opinion have changed, are changing in this country. There's a a growing openness to criticism of Israel and an apartheid state. And I just want to ask you, do you think that this might redirect or weaken that growing openness? Or or what do you think? You know, Janine, I think you raise a really crucial point. And from the moment that this crisis, this particular crisis erupted on Saturday morning, I've been worried about exactly that. I've been writing a lot, talking a lot about the success of our movement, the movement for Palestinian rights, how we have managed to change the discourse. It hasn't been easy. It hasn't been quick. But over the last 20, 25 years, 
we've seen an extraordinary shift, an enormous shift in the public discourse, a very significant shift in the media discourse, not as great as at the public level, but still, and the beginnings of a shift at the political slash policy discourse level. It's been huge. You have things like, in, if we look at the polls, in a recent poll, it, there, there was evidence that 25% of American Jews believe that Israel is an apartheid state. 38% of young Jews believe that. And 44% of Democrats said they think Israel is like apartheid. That, those are huge shifts. They are huge changes. Right. And I think that's very key. We see at the policy level, we saw in 2021 when Israel attacked Gaza, not, not even as bad as this, but in a, in a horrific way that killed a number of people in Gaza in bombing. Aside from the fact that several groupings of, of Congress people and senators were demanding a ceasefire at a time when their own president, their own party was refusing to support a ceasefire. More important than any of those, I thought, was a group of 500 former Democratic uh, campaign staffers, the people who had actually put Biden in office, who headed up the statewide and citywide campaigns, 500 of them signed off on an incredible letter that talked about 75 years of oppression against Palestinians, et cetera, and called for a ceasefire. And what it said, aside from the text of the letter itself, it meant that those 500 campaign workers who have to find a new job every year in a new campaign had come to the conclusion that criticizing Israel is no longer political suicide, that it was not going to stop them from getting a job. And I thought that was an incredible example of how this discourse shift has gone forward. Now, the danger is, of course, that with the emotional, uh, the emotional response to what has gone on in the last several days, and we should be clear, we saw this in earlier examples in, uh, in Syria and elsewhere, that televised and video versions of up-close and personal violence is far more passionately responding than what happens when a pilot drops a bomb, which probably kills far more people. Not surprisingly, it's a very human response, but it's a misleading response. And when it keeps getting repeated over and over again, not just in social media, but in mainstream media as well, some of which have been false videos as well that are being circulated around and repeated in, in some mainstream uh, outlets. There, there is a, a level of emotional response that's much harder to engage with than the responses to the, the far greater wholesale killing, if you will, where far more people get killed under U.S. bombs or under Israeli missiles uh, than ever get killed by individual acts of violence that are so horrific to watch or to even contemplate. So we're up against a big new challenge right now to, to at least not lose those advances that we've made in how the discourse goes forward. It's not going to be easy, but it's not going to happen by itself. It's something that we're going to have to work on. And organizations like FAIR play a huge role in reminding us of that, reminding us in how the media discourse shapes how we come to understand it. You know, one of the things I've been talking about a lot in the last few days is this notion that our understanding of history and our understanding of reality is shaped by when we start the clock. 
if we started the clock on Saturday morning, we would have one version of what happened when those hundreds of Hamas fighters invaded Israel, broke out of the the walled prison that was Gaza, and began to attack not only military installations and military officials, but unfortunately attacked civilians as well in a horrific way. That's one narrative. The broader narrative, if we start the clock a week earlier, we would hear an entirely different thing of how things started. We could move the clock back. We could move back to the last attack on Gaza in 2021. We could move it back to the beginning of the siege of Gaza of 2006 and 07. We could move it back to the beginning of the occupation of Gaza in 1967. So when we start the clock determines how we understand what we're seeing in front of our own eyes. We've been speaking with Phyllis Bennis from the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. You can find her recent piece, As Israel and Gaza Erupt, The U.S. Must Commit to Ending the Violence, All the Violence, at thehill.com. Phyllis Bennis, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. I'm glad to have been with you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced each week by the media watch group FAIR, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to learn about our newsletter, Extra, and to show support for the show, if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.